You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. I have been outside with my kids today enjoying the uh, hot weather, and uh, I'm on the road here soon. I've got a multitude of clients here coming up. Busy, busy, busy. Um, I do want to say, if anybody does want timber cutting or any support uh, into the winter months next year, get a hold of me. Um, you know, Josh and I are starting to plan out our April time frame for cutting. Uh, that's typically when we do a lot of our cutting in March and April. So if you want some timber management, things of that nature, please get a hold of me. Also, I wanted to identify, uh, I'm working on my plans next summer for a habitat day on my property. We may have two sessions 10 to 15 people a session. Uh, more details to come on that, but if you're interested in participating in that, it's uh, a lot less expensive uh, than me coming to your property. It gives you a chance to see what I'm working with. It's going to be in Tully, New York. That's where I live, so central New York. Uh, I, I'm assuming that we'll get uh, probably a lot of interest in that. So reach out to me if you have an interest in that and you want to come see the property. It's going to be a pretty detailed day. We probably will have a master's level class for people that want to take their properties to the next level. So I'm just trying to get some interest inquiries in, and so I know where people are at, and we'll go from there. All right, enough of that. Let's get into the details. So I got Rocky Burris back at Safe Farm Management. It's been a bit for Rocky and I. I know he's been traveling quite a bit, working with clients. Uh, we've kind of got an agenda today. We've talked a little bit off offline. So we're going to get into some you know current work events that he's got going on, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll build on a topic that we want to kind of uh, explore a little bit further. Rocky, hey, how are you doing? Doing good, man. How are you doing? Good. I am uh, just relaxing. I'm kind of enjoying my night. I got to get packed up here for my trip and uh, got all my chainsaws kind of rocking and rolling, ready to go. I'm going to cut some timber, so I'm getting ready for that. I know you've been on the road a lot, you know, working, working with clients, setting up properties, et cetera. Kind of hear what's going on with you. And uh, I want to I want to think a little bit further about new things you've been doing, concepts, ideas, layout anything that's interesting that i think the listeners would, would want to hear about yeah so we are very busy with trying to get the finalized 
plots and and habitat design stuff that I've actually it's a lot of clients that I've actually built plans for and that they're uh, getting me in there to try to build these plans so um, I'm revisiting one client uh, I've had him I've spent three days building veterinaries and stuff and he just really wanted to push and try to build almost everything that we had created so that's what I've been doing. Actually, today was a day I just had to take for myself. <laughs> running, the, running that chainsaw in this heat is uh, for eight hours straight and not really taking a lunch, just trying to stay at it uh, and traveling five hours to do it. it. It wears on you. So I took a day off, and I'm going to be back over there tomorrow to finish him up. So, Oh, boy. I, I know exactly how you feel. I'll be in the boat, same boat here this week. You know, 70, 80 I don't know how hot it is down by you. It's probably a little warmer with high humidity. Uh, brutal, brutal time to cut. But, hey, you know, if they want it done, you got to get it done for them. So, you know, getting into the strategy of cutting this time of year, you know, does anything change for you uh, from layouts, um, things of that nature, what you do now versus, you know, what you do kind of in the winter months? Because you're dealing with a lot of vegetation. So, you know, getting some of those treetops on the ground, and kind of working around that it creates kind of a denser maze of things at least at least it has a tendency to to do that creating kind of this uh i don't want to say you know it's 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 highly camouflaging areas or creating a lot of segregation when you get tops down what, what do you do this time of year a little bit different from maybe the winter months well i i seem to be a little more successful at, at visualizing everything when it is green uh, to myself, because, I mean, I, I go back and revisit some that maybe I've cut in the winter, and I felt like I got it, uh, the skyline cleared enough and got enough sunlight in there and, you know, and compartmentalized it like I thought I would want. And then, you know, the, it just doesn't look exactly like I, I visualized when it greens up. And then when it is green, I can visually see what it's going to, kind of look like i know a lot of it will die off and stuff and but i can definitely pick out the canopy and see the the openings that i'm creating and uh there's no doubt the sunlight's going to make it uh if you can see it when it's all green so i do kind of like cutting it when it's green um it's got a lot more weight to the trees up top so you can control i, I do I, I enjoy the walling effect that i that I do a lot, and when you have all the leaves up top, you can kind of see where that top one-third is really push, pushing to, and it controls the trees and get them all to lean into each other and create walls very easily, um, which, you know, I've had clients sit out there and watch, and they're just amazed. They're like, I don't know how you made those trees do what <laughs> But, you know, when you – I was like, well, wait, wait just a minute. Watch this. <laughs> and you go out and you can cut, and then, and then one tree pushes about 10 or 15 down, and they're just shocked, and it creates the wall. So, I mean, a lot of that stuff is uh, – it seems to be a little easier when it's green. Um, I know I, it's a lot easier on us when it's not <laughs> because it's not 95 to a hundred degrees like it is here with 90 degree or 90 heat index. I mean, uh, it's just, it's hot. And I mean, I'm, I'm drenched and I don't hardly sweat most of the time. So it's a, it's a tough, it's tough on me this time of year, but, um, like say, like you said, I mean, we have to get to everybody. So we're steady 
pushing to get to everybody and as season moves closer people start thinking more about deer and our phone keeps ringing more and more it seems like yeah that's interesting and i did see i think a post from you on facebook or it might have been instagram where you had kind of designed a layout in a food plot and you had some segregation within the food plot i think you were building berms within a food plot and you were i want to say predator proofing them potentially and uh maybe i'm forgetting something correct uh i'm not sure if i'm saying this totally correct but was there anything like that that you did in some of your layouts i thought was pretty interesting and i hadn't heard folks talk about kind of doing you know maybe predator proofing so animals can't get in there so it it kind of i guess promotes interest from prey animals essentially yeah i mean that's the thing about when you when you have great habitat it it doesn't just stick to deer uh it seems to (laughs) stick to everybody so when it comes to predators they enjoy the great habitat also and it's a great way for them to hide and be prey so i mean they can really uh jump out of the thick that you've created so i think on that one build that you're uh referring to is when we we built a food plot and you know, it's sometimes hard to get everybody on the same page. So I, I was talking to the guy running the mulcher with me, and I was like, hey, I just want it only about 40 yards wide right here so that we can pinch the deer down and kind of, you know, kind of the basic kidney-shaped type food plot. And when I went back, he did his did this, like, really big square, and it was 75 yards to the other side. So I was like, okay, well – got to do something so what we did is create a point with with trees that we had you know we built walls around this thing and and created gaps in the walls that for deer to come in and out and and that we weren't really allowing deer to do what they wanted to do when they got within that area which i you know i always seem to refer to that as trapping them so once we built the trap we we had to have you know, I don't, I don't really believe in setting up everything and then sitting in a stand and having a way a deer can slip by you, uh, and your hunt not be successful when everything worked except for you just didn't make that deer walk where you need him to walk. So, um, we built this point and it was a great spot for a bobcat or something to just sit out in the food plot and ambush stuff, you know, turkeys and all that. So, I was trying to create a way that it was so dense and so thick that there was almost no way an animal could even get in it. So that's what we were doing is just really just creating that, uh, with all the debris and then, uh, had to basically all the wood chips is what we did it with. Um, cause he had to mulch so many trees to m- create the food plot. We skimmed the top of the ground, tried to leave as much topsoil as possible, but at the same time, remove a bunch of those, chips and we use that to layer the the lower side and all the way up to you know three or four foot high of the berm of that point and we just really layered it with all those chips so that it was just a wall of chips and there wasn't really a way to hide and get in there yeah it's interesting and i think uh, it's that's a bit of genius right you're using a resource you're applying it in an area and you know hopefully that kind of i guess pushes you know, the predator, you know, not to utilize an area like that because of the density. And like you said, the wood chips tend to create, you know, this big bit of biomass that they tend to, they have a tendency to not want to dig through or use as a denning site, et cetera. So 
something definitely you know that that I paid attention to when I when I saw that. And obviously, creating kind of these inaccessible areas is pretty important. You know, at least for uh, trying to minimize you know that type of predation. Although, although I'll say this: in those areas, they could have a tendency, depending on the space that's created. Woodchucks in our area tend to be uh, keen you know, keenly interested in, in stuff like that. So, you know, it might take a, give you an opportunity to little, do a little woodchuck hunting, which, uh, you know, something to consider. They have a tendency to dent up in, in rocky areas. So, you know, I have yeah. ground in these areas that are, you know, just perfect for, for woodchuck denning. Anyhow, uh, just interesting topic, something, uh, you know, I, I think was kind of cool. So you know, I, I like following some of the stuff that you do. All right, I want to get into the topic that we, we wanted to hit on here a little bit. And um, this is something that, that you kind of talked to me about today. And I think it's it's a good idea. And it's uh, a little different than we've talked about in the past. But you're building right now your hunting schedule for this season. And, you know, we're not talking about your time off. We're not talking about, you know, Rocky's taking vacation from deer life. We're talking about when you're going to hunt and, you know, what you're opportune times to hunt are based upon information that you've kind of collected over the years. And so I kind of want to get into your strategy specifically. A lot of people might think this is a little early in the game to do that. And I will say one thing for me, I still got 150,000 pictures to go through. I've been pretty lazy lately and uh, I haven't had a chance to go through all my last year's pictures. I take a lot of data. So this is pertinent to me per se and how I'm looking at the data and applying you know, when you when deer use areas, there's a lot that goes into when deer are there and why. And I think you started to come up with kind of your theory behind that. And it, it applies to your hunting strategy, you know, coming up. So I kind of want you to break down, you know, some of the basics for folks and then maybe get into the next level stuff where you're going to start making some decisions on deer that you've expected survived or will survive and, and lead into the, the hunting season. Well, basically, um, I am doing exactly that. I'm kind of planning out my seat, my season, <clears throat> or at least planning out areas and farms to pay attention to um, when the weather hits and see if target deer kind of are in that area. So I'll go back. Like what I do with trail cameras is basically I, therefore my buck until i mean i have i don't know how many years back from 1900 something 1990s you know of data of just of all bucks because basically what i do is i when i'm scanning the, through the pictures if it's late season and i got a food source i'm trying to keep that a couple of pictures of the food source and show how many deer are hitting it you know just like a bunch of does and and some bucks but if I'm if I'm just scanning through the season and it's on scrapes and scrape trees and pinch points and different things, um, I'm just grabbing my buck pictures. And when it comes to the younger bucks, I'm only grabbing you know you know three or four pictures in a in a series of of that deer. And then I'm going when it's anything three and a half or older, I'm definitely keeping those the ones that I feel like I can identify the the following year. Um, keeping every single picture that they offer me and I'll go back this time of year as I'm getting kind of excited about the hunt. I'll go back and I'll just, I have them 
separated by farms. I used to do by cameras and everything, but I've gotten to where I kind of, I know the pictures, you know, I know the areas. I mean, I may run close to 200 pictures, cameras, but at the same time, I kind of, when I see the photo, I know where it was taken. I, I don't know. It's maybe something weird about me, but I do. So I don't really have to keep up with the names of the cameras. I just, I go through and I mark on here. I'll scan through all the buck pictures. And then when I get a, a daylight buck picture, I will document it on a mat, on a calendar, like a little booklet. And I have color codes. So basically like this year it's orange, orange highlighter means he daylighted. And then a green highlighter means he daylighted with the doe or he was following does. And a lot of times those doe daylights, you know, that's, that's pretty important because uh, if he's with your does and it's early, like say early November and our rut's closer to the end of November, that means he could possibly be following those does for a long time before he finds one to come in. So I try to document both of those separated out and I, I'll just take on that date. I mark when he daylighted and when he, uh, and what, what camera location or wherever he was. In my case, I have multiple farms, so I'll write the farm and the camera location. If I can see it was rainy, I'll, I'll mark that it was raining. I'll probably go back and where my biggest deer are, the ones that I find this year, I'll go back and find where they daylighted, and then I'll uh, look up the weather and uh, color code that, that day on what wind direction and what the weather was so and and that'll if i ever have that stuff match up i mean it makes all the sense in the world to to go to that location because of that you know because it makes sense that he, he could do it again and you want to normally you with these bigger deer every deer you know those mature deer they all have these different attitudes so you know if he's a roamer i definitely pay attention to this because he may not be on the farm but a week and it may only happen twice a year. And if you miss that week because you were bouncing around or stand hopping, or maybe his home range is only a corner of your farm and he hit it that one week, well, you missed the boat. And you, you go back and check the camera and he made it there for one or two of those days. And you're like, man, if I'd only been there, I'd have got him. Well, I'm trying to eliminate all that. So. I'm, I'm interested in this topic, and this is something that I don't necessarily get to follow too much because of kind of my social hierarchies pretty uh, pretty diminished, right? I have very few deer that make it to three years old, and I'll, I'll throw probably some statistics out. I bet you in my area, and I'm just talking within 25 square miles, I bet you there's not more than 2% of the deer population that's over six and a half years old. It, it may be even less than that. And so, you know, some of these factors play into the number of deer and, of course, kind of the social hierarchy that's present. And so one thing I will say, I think it's very herd specific. And so these floater bucks, and I don't know what else you want to call them. That's what I call them. These bucks that show up randomly, they're dominant deer, you know, they're mature, they're in that five and a half year old or older, you know, age class more than likely. And and they, they have these sounds like you're identifying annual patterns. They have some annual ritualistic routine, you know, some form of movement across the landscape that you're capturing because, like you're suggesting, weather is an indicator. 
probably the resident deer herd, you know, depending on the breeding phase, et cetera. It could be, you know, maybe there's a resident buck that was in that area that has a tendency to also take these jaunts, right? And then he's out of that area and this dominant deer kind of comes in, you know, with his absence. So I'm kind of wondering, like, have you kind of started to look at some of that level of detail and figure out, okay, this buck is coming in, you know, based on these parameters. And I'm sure you probably have some examples because of the data that you have, you know, what, what was the indicate? I mean, you don't know for a fact, you, you'll probably never know the answer, but why was that deer even there? You know, I, I kind of wonder like, what, what are your thoughts behind maybe one of the bucks that you've kind of chased here over time? Cause you've killed some, some monsters. Well, like, all right. So, so what got me turned on this is three years ago, I killed a 14 point in Tennessee that was probably go close to 160. One of those, like you're saying, that's like the top, two three percent i mean we just don't have those deer so the year before i i've already harvested my target buck off this farm but it's a really good farm with a lot of deer on it and it's a heck of a funnel farm so i i have a i have a tendency to and it's only about 15 minutes from my house so i have a tendency when i'm working and i get home and i still have daylight I have a way I can drive out to that farm and get in a, in a vantage spot and just watch in glass. And I would do this like every single day that I can, they can't, there's no way they know I'm doing it. And it's during, you know, it's, it's the last 30 minutes of daylight. So I always get to see, you know, most likely you get to catch that older deer that was not wanting to walk out too much. So, I just got lucky and and found this random new deer. I've never seen him, never had a picture of him, but he came through, and it was like, I don't know. I forgot the date already because it's been a few years, but my buddy, uh, I sent him pictures of him, and he had a drop time, and he was walking dead away from me in front of the truck. And to be honest, I just didn't want to kill him that way for one thing, and another thing is that something told me, don't shoot him, let him walk. He's got a drop time. You never even seen a drop time, but he's just not mature. And he was probably three. And I let him ride and never saw that deer again. Didn't even really. I went a couple more times to see if I could see him so I could see if I messed up. Because <laughs> everybody I know was like, I cannot believe you let a deer like that walk. I had a drop time and everything. <laughs> yeah. So, and I was like, well, you know, I've had a great year. I would assume if I had a tough year, he might not have made it. But you know what I mean? So I was just trying to put the cards together and figure out, okay, where is this deer coming from? Who is this deer? I haven't got his picture. I run cameras here. So fast forward to the following year, um, I get pictures of this really big buck, but he doesn't show. He's not. It's just like. I slip in late with the cameras. I'm real bad about not getting my cameras out early as I want because I'm trying to leave places alone and and I'm really busy. So yep. when I do slip the cameras in there, I'm sometimes I even miss velvet, you know, so I'm I'm just barely on the backside of velvet slipping cameras in. And I did that year and I caught this buck and he was, you know, pushing one sixty, but he had snapped his drop off clean with the, his beam, and I didn't even notice it. 
So I'm thinking this is just, I got a 160. I don't even know who this deer is and all that. So I hunt him a bunch and I never can find him. And that he's not on camera ever again. He disappears just like, you know, he's always done. Well, I, I start putting two and two together. I was like, I wonder if that's the drop time deer. And he just doesn't have a drop this year. And he disappeared. You know, he, he's probably going to come back really similar time of year. So I called my buddy. He told me the day. And I was like, dude, that's this week. You know, it just happened to work out. I was like, okay, I'm going. If I can only be 30 minutes, I'm going every day. So I went on the day. Within 24 hours of when I saw him, I saw him again and killed him. And that afternoon. And it was just like a. It was a replay of the following year when I went and held him up. He had a broken drop time, so I knew exactly who he was. And I thought he was older because I didn't know the deer. And I'm not sure I would have let him walk because he was so big. But I wished he, I was thinking he was five because I had cameras in my corn just like on the ground and it made him look massive, you know. But yeah. anyway, you know, it just, but it was still, I mean, it's still my top two deer and the, on the wall. I mean, it's still a great deer, but that's what turned me on to the whole. We, I called him. I was like, dude, I got him. He's like, Oh my goodness. On the day you saw him last year. I was like, yes, I'm telling you there's something to that because we have done it before. And it was like two days after within, you know, a two to three days schedule, you see the same buck in the same field. And you're just like, what was, what's going on? So, as I've continued the last two or three years, I've just tracked deer. I see it. I mean, I'm seeing it as a pattern. There's no question there's a pattern, but it has to be that personality. You know, if he's a homebody deer, the weather is what I pay attention to the most. And that's why these weather pattern deals will help me on deer that are not traveling and basically living there and take in basically running the farm. But the ones that come and go, this stuff that I'm putting in the on my document, basically planning out my season, that stuff right there is what's going to help me catch up to those deer. So two things that I'm, I'm kind of wondering about, you know, your scheduling piece of it, you kind of detailed. And for the deer that you're looking at specifically, you know, they're using utilizing these farms at different times for different reasons. And, you know, one, one aspect of my property, for example, is my properties become great fawning grounds. And when I think about kind of the layout of the property, I think about it seasonally. I think about some of the areas that I've cut more intense, some that I've left kind of intermediate cover, and then some that are in closed canopy. And when they're using each one of these areas, and these does, when they're doing the kind of the fawning, they have kind of a core range in my property. They take a little excursion as the fawn gets a little bit older. Today, I was sitting here, and um, my kids are home with me, and we're watching uh, just, just behind my house, a doe and two fawns. And I've got a ton of food right around the house. Like I've created like this, you know, I have about four and a half acres here and I've created this little food plot system and it's, it's pretty, it creates a lot of attraction for deer. It's got the right amount of cover on just my little four and a half acres here. And it's just interesting when they use it and why. And I find that there's kind of patterns of movement on my property because of, you know, this, I guess I want to just say that the variation in, in diversity and cover. So, you know, in your example, you're finding deer using certain areas probably at certain times. Maybe you're finding that a certain particular buck is, you know, focusing in, you know, on a particular property at a certain time. And you brought up the, you know, idea of weather. 
like what are the when you're thinking about weather thinking through weather as a factor and kind of building a schedule i find in at least in my instance where i've kind of if a deer does something twice um god help him the third time he does that because he will not live and i i've kind of I've got patterns of three, so I, I typically don't make a move on, on the second continual movement uh, of that deer, behavioral movement that I've kind of classified as, you know, actionable. I kill them on the, usually the third movement. It's usually kind of that cycle that I'm paying attention to that through that September period and that for particularly for early season. So, you know, at least in my cadence of movement, when I'm looking at the landscape and I'm trying to come up with my schedule, it's one particular deer. He's u- using an area at a certain time at an interval. I'm looking at some of the factors like whether you're talking about. I kind of want to know how you look at stuff like when you're starting to drill into the data a little bit more. Well, so I'm basically <clears throat> when I try to, I really feel like weather's huge, um, especially for movement. I mean, our deer are not the same as the deer in the Midwest, not the same as your deer. Right. So we're in the South. We, we, we have what I call sissy deer. <laughs> they just basically, when you have a 20 degree drop in temperature or you have some kind of extreme front come through, our deer completely shut down. I mean, they will not move. They just go to bed and they, they'll skip meals. They do it all. And they don't do much of a feed up ahead of it because they're not used to these fronts, you know. So when we do have a freak front like that, and then we have those eastern winds that follow, and like we've talked on other podcasts, I mean, of yours, that, you know, those eastern winds I really, really pay attention to because normally that's a drawback wind behind the front. Deer are not comfortable in that wind, so that keeps them on their feet longer. Um, even if even if they did bed in the eastern winds, these are most likely areas that they've not bedded a whole lot in, and they just things make them uncomfortable. They get up more, you know, and they shift and do whatever, and just and a mature deer he lives by being comfortable. So, in my opinion, I mean, if you can't provide him the cover and the comfort, it's hard to hold him. So, anyway, I just I mean I just feel like that all those little things. When I see 20 degree drop in temperature or more, I, I, my eyes brighten up. And my phone starts ringing. My buddies are like, "Did you see the weather?" And I was like, "Yeah." He got, they're all like, "Oh, you got east after it. You better look out." I'm like, "Yeah, he's dying this. You know, in the next couple of days, he's in trouble." So a lot of a lot of the uh, my setups are for those winds. My setups, I, I I'll stay out and I just let those fronts do it. But these, you know, I focus the most in that with the weather and all that on those deer that are there that are there a lot and I get them all night and I get them a lot of nights and I get them every once in a while in the daylight and it's usually low light one end or the other and I just know that deer's living in my zone so when those fronts hit and the east hits and all that he's he's pretty much He's mine if I want him. So I usually go in there and almost always see him. But when you hunt the the bucks that aren't there, the roamers and stuff like this, this is when planning out your hunt can help you stay on point. So you see that front hit and all that, and he was there on your farm last year at that time. 
you may have another deer that you think you might get, but you get, he's going to be there all season. You better go after the one that is only going to be there for that week. So that's where I change tactics and stuff. And even if it's all on the same farm, you may notice that too, but he only uses the south end or the north end. Or, you know, there will be deer that home ranges don't take over your whole property and just barely touch into you. And you, if he ever becomes a desirable deer, this planning out your season can really help you stay on. Yeah, and it's, that's really interesting because you're breaking down the personalities or at least how the deer move through the landscape, and it's so individualistic. So, you know, some deer that are less mobile, those deer are a little bit easier to diagnose. The other thing is I'm wondering early season, the factor of food, right? You're putting in this, I want to just, I don't want to say pristine food plots, but you put a lot of effort into food plots in your particular properties that you own and, and lease and hunt. And I think that plays a factor in kind of their movement patterns and their cadence of movement and keeping deer localized on your property. You know, sometimes it's the personalities that push deer out. You know, there's been studies about, you know, kind of what, I guess, people perceive as territorial behavior. And, you know, that's been dissu- dissuaded in some capacity. You know, one thing's interesting, and I don't know why I'm talking about this is random, but, you know, come fawn drop, and I think a lot of people probably notice this is, you know, the uh, car incidents go up significantly, right? And same thing applies, you know, during the kind of early breeding phase and throughout the rut, you know, there's periods where deer disperse uh, or they take, you know, take jaunts and movements, et cetera, because there's this movement on territory and, you know, deer that were comfortable at least finding fawning ground may get dispersed by another deer that may be more dominant in a particular area. So it kind of facilitates this territorial scenario where maybe some of your, you know, subordinate bucks, you know, may not feel as comfortable when a buck kind of starts to get into his dominance and take over an area. And so there's another piece of this that I think plays into the factor of what deer stay and what deer leave, you know, beyond just the food element of it. And I think it's creating as much diversity in the landscape to keep deer in in specific locations uh, as frequently as possible. And I'll just kind of give a little bit of a construct to my property, Rocky, is like I have in the center of my property a food plot, right? It's not intended to be hunted, Yep. it's intended to suck deer, right? I have 46 and a half acres approximately. Now there's a lot of undulation. If you laid it flat, it's probably about 75 acres. Uh, so it almost doubles its size because it's just so hilly. Now in that food plot system, it's connected like a chain link to kind of a moderate food source and then a heavy cut area. And so the deer are staging out of each one of these bedding areas and they're segregated. There's my property's almost bro- broken into three or four chunks, and their lines of movement are really kind of consistent. But they're going from one area to the next area, and having these kind of compartmental holding—I'll just say holding tanks for the deer—has been really kind of one of my success factors. And what I'll realize is, you know, a buck will move from area A to area B to area C, and I'm ca- capturing each one of those cameras. His movement is really consistent. The, the problem is, I've been trying really, really hard to keep these big bucks separated and it's really hard to do that on small ground so you know when you have these hilly ground these deer can see long distances like from hillside to hillside my deer have an easy time looking across the hillside because the elevation is so unique you know there's a couple hundred feet in elevation change from peak to peak and you know i've had a hard time trying to segment deer i've come i've come up with some concepts to kind of manage that but 
you know, holding a lot of mature bucks or holding, you know, several mature bucks on my property has been one of my Achilles heel issues. And, you know, I'm kind of struggling at times to make sure that the property lays out correctly. But, you know, to that point, and, and just kind of wondering, you know, how they move on a property, it's going to be unique to your scenario. And like, I think you've got to really kind of rationalize why they're using a particular area. And is it the food source, you know, maybe you're changing food source, you're having some variability, you know, around you, it could be a factor of hunting pressure, social dynamics. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things that kind of go into this equation. It's hard to really kind of find, have a finite answer to why deer is using an area and why they're not and the randomness of things. And some of it just is, you know, deer have kind of this curiosity uh, about them and they like to explore, you know, you've got, you've just got differences all across the board. And I think that's the fun in all this is trying to figure out the whys of things. And, and I don't think we, we, anybody has the answer, but I know, you know, hill country is a little bit different than flatland you know, areas that are more heavily dominated by agriculture and vice versa, forest settings. I, I see cyclic movements and I try to put some, you know, I, I try to put some parameters around those where I'm trying to build, you know, the properties in a certain way. So they become more rut dominated properties, depending on where I co-locate food and the size of areas I cut, all those type of things. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but I, I, there's a lot of things that go into the you know, the layout of these properties. And, and, you know, I don't think there's a one size fit, fits all for, for everybody, but understanding the movement patterns, I think is quite complicated uh, across the landscape. So paying attention to the camera data is obviously probably the best thing you, you can do on your property. So uh, I don't know what that rant was all about, but yeah, I just thinking about my own property and diagnosing how to hunt some of these deer. And, you know, I got a plan this year for a pretty nice buck and, you know, I've, I've got a decent shot at killing them and, and, uh, you know, more to come on that story as, as I start to put, put together the plan. All right. Um, yeah. yeah. Anything else from you, anything else that you're thinking about, you know, building, you know, your schedule into the season key dates, anything that's, you know, important, I think that you're looking forward to this year in your area. Well, I mean, you know, normally I think I've said this so many times. I don't know if I've said it on your stuff or said it to clients so many times, but, you know, when you're watching the does and, you know, I, and in our area, we're, we're kind of strongly ag. So we have a lot of, uh, ag country around us. Now my property is probably only one third ag and two thirds timber. So I'm creating bedding and stuff close to small plots. Cause I, you know, I don't have that much timber. So I've created small areas with food and, and, trying to stack those right on top of it. And I know that my bucks are in the timber and stuff a lot. And I've, I've got a, I've got a whole new system come February and bringing in loggers and we're going to redesign my whole 10 hundred acres. So, uh, that's going to be pretty massive and, a, and an awesome project. But as of now, you know, my food sources and stuff are competing against agriculture. So I'm, necessarily i'm not trying to pull deer off the ag right now so i'm putting a little pressure on my food sources by driving in them and checking them and trying to make it where if there is bucks around they're just not real real comfortable because i want them to have the farmer's food <laughs> because that food right there is high in nutrients and nutrition and you know they're, they're trying to grow the best and they're spending the money so what <laughs> i'm trying to do <laughs> i'm trying to create 
a scenario where my girls are happy and they stay and I know them. And if as many places I can do this, the better. And then once you, you know, you see your does and you see the girls that live in your bedding areas the most, because I mean, that's what I bet I'm speaking for you, but I mean, on your property where it's so diverse and all that, it's probably full of does and fawns and, and all that because it's got everything. It's got a little bit of everything. And that's what those family groups, they really desire or the bucks, you know, that you can have one little thicket in the middle of the timber somewhere and that's where he wants to be. Or on the edge of a big creek, there's just this real vining, kudzu-y looking spot. That's where he wants to be, away from all that and racket. So I feel like, you know, you got to have that. you got to have him pulled away, but not so far away that you don't ever see him in the daylight, you know. But I just really pay attention to my does. And if I can figure out, okay, I've got does that get chased. And, and that, that stuff I write on here, you know, because – uh, it's all highlighting green when when they're getting followed with bucks either they smell right or the bucks are trying to tell them you know and so i'm i'm highlighting that green on my dates that i get pictures and my my november will be completely covered like i went through one camera and i have one two three four five six seven eight nine nine dates in november marked and then when i went through the cameras in december i have one day and when I went in October, I had one day. So that's how much more that camera location is active. Like, it almost makes no sense to hunt it in October or December because there's one day out of that whole month that I got a daylight picture of a buck that would be somewhat mature. Yeah, and, yeah. and then you had nine, ten days in November spread out throughout the whole month. So at any point in November, if I was just taking this one location and, and plotting it out, uh, I would I would be all about November hunting that stand only. I'd have it set up for that, and I'd hunt the best fronts in those days, you know. And then and your odds would just be go through the roof. But I could have another stand somewhere else that's going to be all October and all you know. So as I lay out as I plot out my season it's going to tell me where I need to hunt. And a lot of people are just, Oh, we got a South wind. I need to go hunt that stand. That's best for the South. You know, and a lot of time they're thinking about their wind. They're not thinking about the deer and how he would use that wind. And I almost never think about my wind. I think about the deer and say, well, if it's a South wind, they're going to scent check this food plot down, downwind of that bedding area. So they're going to be on this side of the food plot or the bedding area. And then if I got up North, then they're going to be on the opposite side. So, and that's how I set up to hunt. And, and then I make my wind. If, you know, he's going to think his wind's perfect and my wind's going to be marginal or, or good. And that's how I end up catching up to him. So, and then you got to stay completely undetected. I mean, you just can't, that's how I've really transformed the farms and the, and the success is just basically removing the pressure, removing me, removing my predictability, all that screening, any any way they could possibly figure me out or see me or do anything, getting in and out of the stand, I'm planting screens, doing hinge screening, walls, whatever I can do to improve every single year. So all those things, you know, we get hired to 
help people do because it's a lot of work and it's some of it's kind of dangerous, you know, chainsawing six foot high and stuff for screen. But, um, I mean, it makes sense to hire somebody that does it every day in yeah. my opinion. So yeah. that's what we get. That's how we get our calls. But it's just definitely a, it's, it's, it's that time of year. I'm getting excited. We have an August hunt coming up. So, uh, our, at the end of August, we get to hunt velvet and, I've been successful the last three years, so I'm hoping to keep that going. <laughs> <laughs> you just created pressure on yourself, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, I like everything you say, and I, I also, you know, I'm interested to hear, you know, your change on your your property, specifically what what you plan on doing and why. Uh, I think probably a topic for us next go around is, you know, building a property around the rut, and you've kind of explained to some degree you know, what your layout consists of. I like your concept of, you know, kind of pushing some of the, the bucks or, you know, more mature bucks off your property a little bit to consume, you know, what's available elsewhere. It, it's an interesting concept because of the ag scenario. That's that's something I don't think people have thought through. So I, I find it all kind of interesting. And I, I think we have our own unique stories, right? Each property has its kind of, it's embossed in kind of this unique I want to say strategy, like my strategies evolved. I put another three quarter acre food plot in this year with a dozer. And I'm trying to focus movement in these kind of key zones. And um, you're right. My property doesn't have a lot of buck interest. It's very random throughout the summer months. They have a tendency to focus on a couple other areas that I'm quite familiar with. And to your point, the observational piece of it, if you can get in an area, especially when you're in kind of like that mixed ag country where you got good observation points, that's going to give you really the best data that you can kind of grasp of, you know, who's lived, who's died. You know, they use these areas for whatever reason. You can look at the deer's, you know, it's social relationships with his kind of these fraternal groups that he kind of chills out with. And then separately from that, you can just see its overall status and health. And if you're building kind of like you talked about, you know, the trap or you're building these properties that are, very inclusive. They've got a lot of like food resources, stem densities balanced correctly where it's not too thick in some areas. And, you know, like you said earlier, like having this, this dense thicket within kind of an open woodlot always kind of builds interest for mature bucks. And then you're just creating these ideal scenarios for deer to kind of lay up. And then that diversity across the landscape and those food resources that pull them into these seasonal opportunities where, you know, I think Ellinger and I've talked a little bit on this is, you know, putting food right within the bedding areas and kind of using that as your honing tactic to allow those, you know, I guess, you know, doe groups to feel more secure. And that's a great strategy for the rut. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier where, you know, I've kind of have just such a small property. I'm, I'm, I'm not blessed with a large amount of land. Um, and then I've got to be very keen out of necessity uh, of what I'm doing. And, you know, the neighbors are always like, Oh, there's the sanctuary up there. And I'm like, I'm hunting the sanctuary. It's not a sanctuary. You know, I just, like you said, you're getting in and out of there and you're trying to be as, as clean as you can. I just wish that somebody would develop a, you know, a, a drone that wouldn't, that could pull me or pick me up in the air that wasn't making any noise and drop me into that stand. That would be ideal. And, you know, I, I hunt in and out, out of it like a bubble, you know, and that, if somebody can invent that, you know, give me a, give me a call because I'd market the hell out of it. So I don't know. That's just some of my thoughts here. Yeah, it's absolutely key that, uh, I mean, the hunters are thinking your place is a sanctuary. 
you just want the deer to also. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's that's the key. I mean, I really feel like you could really get away with almost doing nothing and just having a, a, the perfect access and probably kill some of the best deer in the area because they don't think you're there, you know. And, I mean, all the food and all these different things that we do, I think it helps a ton as far as keeping your doe herds happy, keeping them popping out earlier and earlier and earlier. As they, you know, I mean, when you're in the park, the the deer laying in the fields right there where you can see them. So, I mean, it's the same scenario as you want to create this park scenario where the deer feel as safe as they are in a national reserve. I mean, they just walk out, lay in your, lay in your food plots, just enjoy what you've provided for them, but they do not have any fear that you're hunting them. And when you create that, it's just pretty magical to, and and quite simple to nail down these, the older deer in the area, it seems like, because they just, once they see the relax of everything, it's, it's pretty simple for them to want to keep checking in on it, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I like that, that measure of success is, uh, you know, multiple deer maybe laying out in these bedding areas. And that's the one thing I'll just take a key out of th- that kind of suggestion there is where you've got these, we'll just say this, this conglomerate of bedding areas kind of linked together. Let's just say in the center, you do have a food source. And this is how a section of my property is designed. It's small food source, about a 10th of an acre. And the neighbor below can kind of see some of the deer kind of like, bouncing back and forth but it's outside of his line of sight he can kind of see him come to the edge of the bed here and then they go up back to the food source but they're you know i got camera pictures of them laying in that food source like so that that is a measure yeah. of success right i mean if the deer are Absolutely. that, that yeah. you, know, that, you know that comfortable in those areas you know i think you can consider that that a win on the landscape and whether you harvest well, it's it not considered not. yeah it's not considered an open area to them you know that's it's part it's part of their bedroom yeah and when when you when you can hunt the bedroom, you got the best chances. <laughs> I mean, that's eighty percent of their life they're spending in that bedroom, and and probably ninety five percent of their daylight life. So, and when you can hunt those bedrooms, you have just completely changed the game. And and when a food source becomes part of the bedroom, that's where it's at. So I really feel like you know, five yards in off these food sources, if that's not considered bedding, you're missing the point. Yeah, uh, I mean that's just kind of where where I've kept pushing my you know all my best properties are either pinch points funnels that basically it's like a power line effect where deer cannot get from one wood block to another without crossing your opening, or food is so tight to bedding that it, that on an eighty degree day you still have a chance. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. So and and when you have that scenario you're really not just out there getting lucky. You have built success. You just have to spend the hours in the stand and you're getting to these stands and hunting them undetected. I mean, that's where it's at. So, I mean, understanding thermals and all that. See, I, I've moved away. I've kind of turned into an old man. I, I've gotten into box stands <laughs> and sent, sent proofing them and sitting in an office chair and eating my uh, moon pie and watching deer. So, uh, you know, but I like to film, so I like to have camera gear and all that, and I'm moving around, and it's just a lot more fun for me to to stay in a box stand. Uh, so I try to design a lot of stuff through 
with boxes, but you could have a two man ladder in that same spot as long as your winds were perfect, you know? So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm starting to, I was uh, mowing my yard today and I was thinking about this specifically. I'm like, you know, have I gotten soft? And, um, you know, I, I don't know, people probably don't know this about me and I don't know if it's relevant or not, but you know, I grew up in the suburbs and I hunted industrial parks growing up as a kid. Fortunately, my parents had a farm, uh, down in a very, um, I guess non-populated area. So I got to hunt, you know, big mixed ag. And then I hunted big state forest, forest land. So I got this diversity of experience. And I remember hunting behind, you know, uh, a local drugstore. And, uh, but as a kid, you know, it was kind of free reign for me. And I was tracking deer through industrial parks as a, as a kid building stands out of pallets that I would find. And, you know, what I, what I, what I learned through all this is like every, you, you can make anything happen in any area. It's just that kind of, you know, ingenious kind of mindset. And, you know, it's having really nothing. And, you know, I don't want to say coming from nothing, but I didn't come from, you know, modest means. Right. But I was ingenious in what I was thinking through. And I just think out of necessity, like some of your plans have probably come out of, okay, I've got this material to work with. What am I going to do with it? Like the mulch is an example, you know? And, and I think it's just thinking about what does and doesn't work. Like one of the things I I just, I've, I don't know why. Yeah. And I overlook, I I overlook that. Like (laughs) I overlook that me even doing that and you, it's something that caught your attention. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah, to <laughs> totally. Yeah. Because if yeah. You, if you're in the weeds and you're saying, okay, what am I doing and how am I making this better across the landscape for my ultimate goal of, and you're talking about, you know, you were talking about prey and then the, the turkeys, you know, maybe not utilizing an area as much because you've done this kidney shape movement, which we know is not ideal for turkeys, right? We know that. So how are you dissuading predators yeah. from using air? I was like, that's genius. And the other pieces of, of not making deal deer feel too compartmentalized. I think in some of the layouts that I'm yep. seeing, I'm watching people cut timber completely wrong. I mean, these are big name consultants or more well-known than I am. And I'm watching their cut cutting on properties that I've been to. I go, what the heck are they doing? And it's, it's, it's yeah. having that aware. And I'm not trying to call anybody out. I don't want to make this podcast like that, but I, I just don't see really a lot of, uh, deep thought put in each one of these things. And I'm treating every client's property as my own. And I don't want, I want them to have the success like you're talking about. And um, when you don't have a high, right. high deer population or, you know, a great age structure, whatever the case you're dealing with, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road because I'm not, you know, I can't just recommend to somebody, you know, kind of a basic, well, you, you cut, you put a bedding there in in, an area here. I want to get down to the specific species of plant that are in that area, the benefit to the animal life and how to promote that, or in some cases, remove it across the landscape if it doesn't benefit the deer. So in in my area, you got to go to that level. And when I was hunting that industrial park back in the day, I learned what deer and deer did and didn't eat just based on observation. I may not know the plant, but I was hunting these really dense thickets, you know, probably around like toxic ponds. And like, if you saw some of the areas I hunted, you'd be like, uh, you can guys, anybody wants to Google Liverpool, New York, that's where I grew up in. And you look at these areas, there's no hunting in those areas. Well, there was. Yeah. And if you saw it, you know, you, you wouldn't believe, you know, the, the low quality of hunting that I experienced. And so you, you gotta be resourceful. And that's, that's the point that I think I got out of this podcast today. 
you know, well, a lot of the big, I feel like a lot of these big names are, are getting away with this stuff because they, they're hunting the Midwest. And I'm not trying to diss the Midwest, but that animal is not the same animal we're hunting no, at all. No, it's not. I, I hunt, I, I do hunts in Nebraska, and we, we, we go out there every single year in October, and I'll see 15, 20 bucks, and, and probably three-quarter of them will be the bigger bucks that we see here. You know, and and you can come back here, and you, it's almost like a ghost town again. Yeah. So it's not it is not the same. So I mean, you can do these hinge cuts wrong, and you can do all this stuff, and and get away with it, and look good on TV, and have all these success stories. But that's because naturally, those those deer, their attitudes, their their reaction to pressure. I mean, you could stop and look at them with binoculars and see how big they are out of the truck and you stop, you hit the brake lights at my, anywhere around here and our deer are bolting. <laughs> same with the, same with the turkeys, you know? So, I mean, you can't slow down. If you let off the gas when turkeys are in the field, they raise their neck and run in the woods. So, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that is known when you live here. I mean, you don't see many guys from the Midwest running out here to hunt and same with you <laughs> because they've got it. They know they've got it. And they got it a little bit bigger and a little bit better and a little bit easier, in my opinion. But that's me coming from the South. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's easier yeah, and, <laughs> to and, me. And, and that's it true. is to me. I know all the stuff I know. I run out there, and I, I find success within a week. Yeah. You know, and, and I come here, and it takes me the season. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the people that own land in some of these states – Pennsylvania, New York, you know, Tennessee, you know, some of those states, West Virginia, Virginia, big deer populations of Virginia and Maryland. But, you know, some of these areas kind of east, east coast, it's different. And um, I have this fractured mindset where, you know, I had, I guess I want to say I had a little bit of a concern uh, with, with folks always coming out here to the east and consulting. And, you know, I, I've kind of just, you know, I, I know what I know, right? And I'm trying to take my clients to the next level. And this isn't like, there's no arrogance in any of this stuff. I'm, I'm continuing to learn like everybody else. I have my strategies and philosophies and, and I'm successful, right? And so are you. And I don't think if you haven't experienced, you know, that suburban hunting or the, you know, poor degraded deer herd or whatever the case, and you don't, you're not having to fine tune your game to go out West and then to come back here, it's eye-opening because the difference is so significant. I just was out in Ohio, right? The differences are so yeah. drastic. I can drive around Ohio on a client's property, and I'm looking around, and there's 150 deer, 150 inch deer walking around in fields. I mean, that deer yep. in our area, yep. would it would never, ever, ever see the light of day. He, he would have been uh, dead and, two ways to Sunday uh, before he even stepped out into that field. And you know, and your and uh, yeah, and your area has probably got four times the hunters, and you know what I mean. It's yeah. just, it's just a, a drastic change. It, it's what makes the animal so much easier. Is he feels like there's not as many hunters, not as much pressure, not as. In my opinion, I mean, I know somebody's not going to like me saying it's easy in the Midwest, but no, it's yeah. At yeah. the same time, I mean, I know it's hunting, but at the same time, I mean, those two animals side by side are just completely different. Well, and, and um, we, we had Perry Perry Batten from Jury was on here, and we were talking. He's like, "Yeah, we just put yeah. the you know the box blinds out in the fields," and I said, "Boy, 
um, every property I go to, guys are putting box blinds out in the field because they see these TV shows. And I'm like, I got that box blind tucked where you can just see a peephole. <laughs> you know, it's enough to get an arrow yeah. out of it. And, you know, very rarely am I sticking a box blind out in the field. It just, again, the level of pressure is so much different. And that's, again, like you said, that's not degrading. It's the reality. And we just don't have easy cake out here. So I, I just... I want people to be aware of that. Yeah. And, and that doesn't make me special, um, but it gives me just a different take on things. And certainly uh, I'm concentrating on what I can control. And I'm really trying to amplify every inch of these properties because I know that all matters in the scheme of things. And that's why I'm focused down to the plant level rather than this broad brush stoke. This isn't Wisconsin, y'all. But I know parts of Wisconsin are very difficult. So I don't want to I don't want to subcategorize and say, you know, those uh, what is uh, what does somebody say? You know, those big buck states and the guy, same guy who's talking about those big buck states is in a big buck state comparatively. And uh, he should come out and hunt Rhode Island and Connecticut and uh, Vermont and I'm going to New Hampshire here. He should come see some of those areas and recognize the differences. And as you travel more east, in a lot of cases, the population declines significantly. And there's a yeah. lot of predators in our areas as well. Black bears obviously are very prevalent in some of our areas. So I don't know, it's just things to consider. Yep. Well, that's why I really believe you should hire somebody in within your zone. You know, I went to eight different states, but they were all pretty much southern states. You know, somewhere close yeah. uh, within within six or eight hours driving. Uh, I do hunt. You know, all the way basically in the west and that Nebraska, four hours from Denver, Colorado. So I mean, I see it all. We had the TV show for eight years. We hunted it all. Uh, you know, when you're trying to get footage, you're hunting the Midwest, you're hunting Kansas and all those places. So I've seen success and been on those places, but at the same time, it just is, you have to think like the animals when you're living in the South, you just can't, you know, they're just so much more high strung and, and things bother them so much more. I mean, we do set boxes kind of out in the open, but we don't, uh, I do feel like if you're going to put a six by six, anything, it could be purple. It doesn't matter. The deer know it's there. <laughs> yeah. So you have to basically make it part of the environment, you know. And, and I, I mean, I'm not going to say this random rant, uh, old deer comes busting through there during the rut. It's not going to stop in the middle of that plot and stare straight at it. And maybe not even like it. But the social deer, the ones that live there, the ones that, you know, all the ones that are consider your place home they know that box and they unless you change something like open a window or something like that they don't even pay attention to you after a while so it's just different in different areas obviously yeah no and, and let's try to end, end with that because I, I, yep. I think I think we have a we have an opinion on that and uh, I don't want anybody to get defend, offended about this this has just been you know my experience Rocky's experience and that's not degrading yeah. anybody whatsoever it's just recognizing there are differences and your strategy needs to adapt to those differences and you may need to be more cautious in certain instances and, and I'll, I'll, I'll add with one little point of it is we all have differences of opinion on how to approach these things. This uniqueness makes this podcast, um, I, I think, probably the, one of the best podcasts there, there are out there at this point. Because each one of these managers that, do, that does this professionally, they have their unique individual perspective 
there are similarities between Rocky, Jim Ward, you know, uh, Todd Shippey, you know, everybody that's been on here, Perry, Jake Ellinger, and guys that consistently provided this podcast. And I think that those differences are supposed to give you perspective. And that perspective should make you change or at least have an idea of things that you can do differently. And and that's why we're kind of doing this because uh, we think that, you know, that diversity and experience is going to give you better success in the field. All right, man. Um, it's good catching up with you. I'm interested in hearing about your project coming up. When are you starting the cutting of that timber? Uh, it'll be in February. Okay. Uh, I was I just held them off for this season, and then I wanted to get it as early as I could uh, so I could get as much growing season after the cut. So Yeah, and I'm going to put pressure on you because yeah. I'm going to walk through what you're doing on your property, and I think we should all kind of walk through – you know, kind of the lessons learned that you have throughout that experience of what did or didn't work. And, you know, sometimes logging, I know you're going to oversee the project, but, you know, logging kind of lends oh, yeah. itself to uh, changes that you, you don't always anticipate. So it's, it's a good lesson to be learned throughout your process. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We'll definitely be documenting as much as of it as possible and basically creating the same thing you are as kind of a walkthrough property and, place where people can go visit and see how we did it. Just like people want to see what they you did on your place. They can come see your walkthrough. So. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Great. All right, man. Thanks for taking time out of your evening and uh, stay safe out there cutting. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Good luck. Right. See, see you. Bye. Maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.